You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Most of us were introduced to the Yoga Sutras in our 200-hour teacher training, but probably only for a one or two or maybe three-hour module. Today's episode might serve as a refresher for you about why the Yoga Sutras has such a primary place in the culture of modern postural yoga. If you've heard all this before, consider yourself to have attended an exceptional teacher training, though, because a lot of the information in today's episode is not widely known and not taught in most yoga teacher trainings. If for some reason your YTT didn't cover the Yoga Sutras and you haven't dived in on your own, it is the most densely packed 196 lines you've ever encountered. It becomes really clear very quickly that a few hours cannot begin to scratch the surface of this fascinating and enigmatic text. People tend to have a strong reaction to the sutras. Some people adore them, Others find them completely confusing and inaccessible, and yet others dismiss them as unimportant or at least less important than other ancient texts, such as the Bhagavad Gita. And this does have some validity, as you'll learn later in this episode. The Bhagavad Gita has a tradition of study that is unbroken and continuous from ancient times until now, while the Yoga Sutras does not. So if this is the case, why is this text so ubiquitous in yoga teacher trainings? Is it really too dense or archaic for the modern yogi to benefit from? And would modern yoga teachers be better off focused on other texts? Perhaps, I don't know. (laughs) But the state as it is, is that we get exposed to the yoga sutras, we are asked, requested, and required to study them, So here's a little bit of context. The Yoga Sutras and their commentaries could offer a lifetime of study. I consider myself to be a student of the text alongside you, dear listener, and I'm definitely not an expert dispensing answers here. I I rely on other experts. A lot of the information in this episode comes from a fascinating book called A Biography of the Yoga Sutras by David David Gordon White which I highly recommend to any yoga teacher who wants to understand the place of the yoga sutras within the culture of modern postural yoga and also its wider history among scholars and practitioners. In my experience, the choice to dive into the yoga sutras and truthfully any of the ancient texts requires a willingness to sit with some uncertainty, some discomfort, and some not knowing. There are teachers and commentators out there who will tell you that they know exactly what Patanjali meant in one or more of his aphorisms. I would back away very slowly from anybody who claims to have an authoritative point of view on the Yoga Sutras or anything that was written nearly 2,000 years ago. The truth is, because of the age, we simply cannot know with certainty almost anything about this text including when it was written, who wrote it, the true intention behind each terse verse, and even if 
a specific word was in the original version or not. Currently, there are three categories of people who are interested in studying the Yoga Sutras. Yoga teachers and practitioners, scholars, and scholar practitioners. Each of these groups have their own biases and their own blind spots, but the latter two groups of the scholars and the scholar practitioners understand and seek to mitigate the effect of these biases. They know about and they understand the problems of confirmation bias and cognitive dissonance. They do their best to mitigate those factors. They also attempt to learn about each topic they study on multiple levels including getting as close to the source as possible. The inscrutable aphorisms of the Yoga Sutras are fertile ground for yoga teachers, practitioners, and gurus to project on and support their worldview. Now, if you look at the sutras as a lens through which to view the world, to seek a deeper understanding, it's probably fine not to know exactly what Patanjali meant to say when he wrote the text. The problem comes, though, if you use the text as evidence for your authority while upholding an incomplete or inaccurate understanding of its history and its place in the yoga tradition. I don't personally think that it is worth sacrificing accuracy for clarity and a coherent narrative. I believe that if we infuse our teaching with a healthy dose of humility, then we can be both helpful and truthful at the same time. My personal values lean more towards accuracy than simplicity, so while I really like to learn multiple viewpoints, I do trust the rigor of scholarship because while academics are not always right, their worldview does include updating their belief system once more information becomes available, While a lot of times, if you take a traditional or lineage-based viewpoint, there's no updating because the idea is that the knowledge is already perfect. The criticism, the valid criticism about academics is that they can take the magic out of a topic by overanalyzing it and micromanaging the information and getting too detailed. Personally, I think this is a matter of personal taste. I believe that as long as you're studying an academic work that you're truly interested in and it's on the right level for you, meaning that you have the background information and the vocabulary to understand it, it can be plenty magical. While the sutras are the most famous example, the sutra style of Indian literature has a lot of other examples, such as the Narada Bhakti Sutra and the Pratabhijna Hridaya the recognition sutras. So this style of religious literature includes terse verses meant to be memorized, along with one or more commentaries called abhashya. The two together, the sutras plus the commentary, are called a shastra, which implies a complete and authoritative body of knowledge. In the case of the Yoga Sutras, the first and most important bhashya is attributed to a sage named Vyasa, And each of the 10 or so traditional commentaries that follow referred to the Vyasa commentary, and they often rebutted or disagreed with it, but always acknowledged its place as the first commentary. In fact, a lot of scholars currently 
suspect that Vyasa and Patanjali were the same person. Unlike in our Western culture, where you would gain status by claiming credit for your own work, by separating it out into two authors and claiming that the sutras was more ancient, that that actually elevated Vyasa's work. And we don't know if Vyasa was named Vyasa, if Patanjali was named Patanjali. In fact, it's highly likely that neither of these was the author's actual name. For later commentators, it's important to note that they each had their own idea about number one, what Patanjali originally meant, and number two, whether or not Patanjali was even right about his ideas. This means that within the literary philosophical tradition that surrounds the Yoga Sutras, they're not taken as revelation or ultimate truth. They're considered to be the work of a man that can be questioned and, if necessary, rebutted. Alongside the literary sutra tradition, there's also an oral tradition. In this method, sutras are meant to be memorized through chanting, then explained thoroughly by a teacher or commentator. The memorized version acts as a mnemonic device so that the one-time student can then explain the meaning behind the sutras to his student. By comparing different translations of the texts, we know for sure that the words and the meanings get drastically changed each time a text is copied over. We can only imagine, thinking of the game telephone, how much gets changed when the teaching is oral. It is possible that the sutras had been passed down orally from teacher to student for many years or even centuries prior to being written down with the teacher providing the necessary commentary. However, it's unlikely that they were passed down in an unbroken lineage until the present day. According to White, the sutras reached their peak of popularity in the 9th or 10th century, and they fell out of favor in the Middle Ages. Quote, For several hundred years prior to the discovery by a British Orientalist in the early 1800s, the Yoga Sutra had been a lost tradition. As a result, scribes had stopped copying the Yoga Sutra manuscripts because no one cared to read them, and instruction in yoga philosophy had dropped from the traditional Hindu curriculum because no one cared to recite or memorize the sutras. If you want to hear more about how White came to this conclusion, he goes over the evidence exhaustively in the book, which I will link to in the show notes. So I return to the question, why study the Yoga Sutras in our teacher trainings, in our teacher trainings that are focused on modern postural yoga? Why study this text that is really focused on a form of very austere mental yoga? My own simple answer is I study the Yoga Sutras to do my part to avoid appropriation. I want to understand the origins and the context of the yoga tradition so that I can respectfully call myself a yoga practitioner and humbly a teacher. The Yoga Sutras are particularly suited to this intention for two reasons. One, because they have received so much attention in the past 50 years, they are very accessible to study. Two, the Yoga Sutras were recommended by Krishnamacharya, who is the grandfather of modern postural yoga. If you practice, teach, or have learned from any teacher in the Iyengar, 
Ashtanga, Power Yoga, Vinyasa Yoga, Jiva Mukti Yoga, Anusara, or Vini Yoga traditions, to name not an exhaustive list, but just a few, you've been influenced by Krishnamacharya. If any of your teachers or your teacher's teachers studied with Iyengar, Patabi Joyce, Desika Char, or Indra Devi, then you're directly in the Krishnamacharya lineage. I believe that the study of the Yoga Sutras is respectful to the tradition from which I have benefited, and I'm willing to take that on. That seems like a small price to pay for the life-changing benefits I've received. You don't have to study the Yoga Sutras. If you'd rather study other yogic texts, you're willing to do the extra work to find sources, teachers, commentaries, you have my respect. I hope, at the very least, this episode has sparked some curiosity for you about the more recent theories and understandings about the Yoga Sutras. If you'd like to dive in more deeply with me, I'm offering an entire weekend of exploration on teaching the sutras in my beautiful hometown of Asheville, North Carolina, September 7th and 8th, 2019. You can register at AshevilleCommunityYoga.com. If you register by August 7th, you'll get a significant early bird discount of nearly 30% less than the late registration price. We will spend a nourishing weekend together studying the sutras and practicing bringing them to life in the context of a group yoga class. We will do this through movement, meditation, journaling, group discussion, and most importantly, practice teaching themes from the sutras with reflection and feedback. I think you'll enjoy this weekend if you want to improve your ability to describe the teachings in your own words and make them accessible to your students. If you want to learn to weave concepts from the sutras into your teaching of asana, pranayama, and meditation. If you want to practice developing class themes based on the sutras, clarify your understanding of the history and the context of the sutras, and connect with like-minded teachers to fill your cup of inspiration and go home excited to share these ideas, these concepts, and these practices with your students. Again, early bird registration is available until August 7th, and you can register at AshevilleCommunityYoga.com. That's all for this week, yoga teacher. Just a reminder, make sure that you're spending time, that you're making time for your personal practice, that you're making time to fill your cup and keep yourself inspired, energized, and fed so that you can keep doing the work that you're doing. 